Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Ruler Podcast. I'm Ian Parkinson. Well, this edition was due to be a celebration of the classics and monuments season so far, in particular a fine edition of Paris-Roubaix with a hard-fought victory by a worthy winner. Then, of course, we woke up the day after the race to have confirmed the news that many of us had gone to sleep dreading. 23-year-old Michael Gerletz, a rider for the Verandas Willems Crelan team, had died after a seemingly routine crash in the peloton on the second set of cobbles. Well, the author and commentator, Ned Bolting, is with me. Uh, Ned, first of all, fatalities in, in pro cycling are relatively rare, but it's still a ghastly business, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a reminder that um, we are flesh and blood. Road racing in particular belongs on that spectrum of human activity, which is inherently dangerous risk. You know, and that's, I'm, I'm afraid that forever will be part of its appeal. Um, uh, uh, on a day like this, it's very hard to face up to that truth, but it is... You know, we, you, go, you go to the circus to see the, the trapeze artist and the high wire act and you don't want to see a safety net. It takes the edge off the experience. And I don't know whether um, we will ever kind of resolve that internal conflict within, within road racing. The fact of the matter is that cycling and a, a family are now um, mourning the loss of a 23-year-old son. Um, you know, he's not, he's not a rider I knew much about. The name was familiar to me, but little more than that. Um, I did notice him for the first time as a racer um, just last weekend. In the Tour of Flanders. In the Tour of Flanders, where he's in the breakaway. Um, probably his biggest day out on a bike. He came from the east of Belgium, was, was brought up in, in those kind of like cycling heartlands where Philippe Gilbert comes from, actually, um, right over to, towards the south of Antwerp. Uh, he was picked up briefly... Uh, by Lotto Soudal and was a stagiaire with Lotto Soudal a couple of years ago in 2016 um, in the same intake that Lotto Soudal picked up James Smith. Um, and he, he did okay for them, you know. He got a couple of victories. One, one race in particular, um, a, a race that doesn't feature as a kind of professional victory because it's a, a level below that in Belgium, but nonetheless a brutally hard race to win called Brussels Zeppelin. Um, he won attacking 75 kilometers out on a day when it was snowy and it hailed. 
he was one of them. You know, he was Belgian through and through. Uh, he was, he could win from a small group. He was big, a hard man. If you look at his results over, over this, this early season of 2018, leading up to this, um, his uh, death in Paris-Roubaix, uh, he was in the break in the Tour of Flanders. He finished 20th in uh, Kerner-Brussels-Kerner -Kerner and 9th in the top 10 in Dvars-Dor-West-Vlaanderen. And, um, you know, that suggests that he had a great future ahead of him. Uh, as you say, the, the danger and the risk um, of pro cycling is you know, no one or very few people want to see uh, crashes but 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 surviving the risks is is part of the appeal well and, and but there is i mean there is perhaps something that we can take from this i think as a wider cycling community and I, the benefit of hindsight it's easy but i genuinely in the in the in the day or so before paris roubaix this year was starting to become uneasy with the online fetishization of uh, the potential for a wet race. You know, there's this yearned-for idea that Paris-Roubaix is, is a better spectacle when it's wet. Um, I understand that, you know, to some extent. I, I also wanted to see a wet race. But I think we should all just kind of back off that a little bit, take a step back and appreciate that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous race. Don't make it more dangerous, I don't think. You know, you don't, for example, on the Tour de France, you don't pray for an icy and treacherous descent, do you? You don't do that. You know, you, 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 you want the race to be as safe as it can be. And yet, as we've touched on right at the beginning, it's, it's a dangerous sport. So aside from that awful news, it was actually a great race. And it always is. It always is. My it's my favourite race on the calendar. I'm not alone in that regard, I don't think. I think it has, I think it has more um, ebb and flow and more nuance and more intrigue than even the Tour of Flanders. I mean, I have a personal preference for Paris-Roubaix over the Tour of Flanders because Flanders does have its, you know, it has its claremont, it has its launch pad, it has its clear, defined places where the expected moves will happen. And yes, Paris-Roubaix has um, the Carrefour d'Arbre and, and of course it has the, um, the Arenberg Trench and those are the two kind of, you know, the things that you highlight. But, you know, in it, time and time again, you see the race develop in the in the inter, inter in, in in between phases um you never quite know when it's going to happen and you know, often it is defined by crashes that can come out of the blue you know it, i think that the the size or the relative small size of the group that was eventually left trying to chase down peter sagan was in some length uh, to some extent at least dictated by the crashes along the way um, uh, and that's a part of it, but it's just a, it's just a, it's just a fascinating race. I mean, it's just, there are so many, what impressed me about Sagan on this particular occasion, there's so many infinitely variable ways of losing that race and very few ways of winning it, you know, and to, and to, to get hit the right formula on the right day and back it up with the physical strength that he did, um, it was great to watch. I, I know I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And wearing the World Champions jersey as well. Yeah, helps, doesn't it? A, a word also about Sylvain Dillier, um, who put in an extraordinary performance. And, you know, could. You get Peter Sagan on your wheel, then you, you're probably thinking about second place. But, you know, he could have won. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, you know, the, no one was talking about Sylvain Dillier's potential in Paris-Roubaix. I mean, literally no one except perhaps Sylvain Dillier, um, I don't think. 
He wasn't on anyone's radar. He came up with a fantastic quote. Uh, I was just reading about late last night, or was it early this morning, where he described, he was talking to Peter Sagan in a tweet, and he said, you are an angel and a devil in one person, which I think is just, I'd be so proud of him if I came up with that. But that, you know, he's in a, in a beautifully wrought phrase. He has summed up the, um, both the, the honour, uh, the triumph, and the despair of the situation in which he was cast, you know, I, I have to work with this beast of a rider in order to um, hold on to my second position, but that's all it's going to be. Um, but there would you're absolutely right. There would have been a moment where Sagan was going, hang on, I, I haven't shaken him off. And, uh, and um, what can he do to me on the track? I will have to be absolutely on it on that track to get the better of Dillier. And, and, and he did. He, he did, Sagan. He got the better of him. Um, but it was interesting. I mean, you do... You do you saw them conversing once or twice in the final 10 kilometres when it was clear that um, after a kind of 10 or 15 minute block of effort when that chase group, the Terpstra Van Avermaet group, was working you know, through and off and they, they definitely kind of became a team, um, took back, clawed back five painful seconds that became 10 painful seconds, but then they stalled. And then they realised that, all right, then they started finessing their own battle for third place, didn't they? Um, so from that moment on, that, then you saw this conversation going on between Dillier and Sagan. And I think the conversation probably was something along the lines of, you know, Sagan said, how far are, you, are we going to take this? And I think they both said, let's take it to the track. And then may the best man win, you know. And it's great. I'm trying to think the last Paris-Roubaix that came down to two, two men entering the velodrome. And I, I mean, Cancellara and Sepp van Marker springs to mind where Cancellara completely, tactically murdered the faster man on the track. You know, that was Sepp van Marker's all day long. He's the, he's the fast, he's a track specialist, he's got the sprint on him, and Cancellara just, just got inside his head, you know, by virtually coming to a standstill and teasing, teasing him onto the front. Um, yeah, every race should end in a velodrome, shouldn't it? I mean, we're here at Herne Hill Velodrome, and I've been banging on for, uh, for as long as I can remember to the Tour of Britain organisers to bring the race into here. I'd love to see a race finish here. Love to see the whole pack trying to get through that narrow entrance though. Well, you'd have to might... string it out a bit, wouldn't you? You'd have to be a few times over Gypsy Hill before they sort of drop down into the velodrome. Bit of a South London thing, that. Sorry for those of you who don't know South London geography. But looking at the uh, classics and monument season as a whole, it's, it's been a pretty good year. It's been fantastic, especially if you wear the blue of Quickstep. Extraordinary to watch that kind of spread out from their classics team, this wave of success within their team, and then spread to the to the Basque country and beyond. You know, so it's all of a sudden, Enrique Mass starts winning, and Alaphilippe can't stop winning, and you know, and on and on and on it goes. And then the emerging riders, Fabio Jakobsen and uh, Hodeg or Hodge, as we um, can choose which way to say him. You know, these are names to conjure with for the future. And yet their established stars are still doing it. And the only rider, really, to be disappointed from their ranks, I think, is Philippe Gilbert uh, at the end of it all. Um, OK, he's still got the Ardennes classics to come good, and maybe he will. It's been tremendous. It's been really, really, um, really good to watch. But it kind of always is, isn't it? It's one of the great blocks of racing in the calendar. It's been interesting, actually, to see uh, how sort of newer fans, if you like, are now becoming more interested in the classics, having probably been attracted by some of the Grand Tours. Actually, that there's much more interest now, much more public interest now in, in some of the earlier races. Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess there is. It's still, uh, you know, I, I think it's we're some way through. We're some way off kind of breaking through into the wider sporting consciousness in, this, in the UK environment in terms of, I think it's still a cycling insider thing to a large extent. Whether or not, I mean, I think a British victory at Paris-Roubaix might help um, 
can't see it coming anytime soon. No. Um, I must say, they seem to be, you know, Luke Rowe was again unfortunate, but they seem to be, the, you know, the Stannard, Rowe, Thomas generation seem to be further away rather than closer um, now. So it might be, might be over to Tom Pitcock in future. Well, you've now done all the monuments, haven't you? You've now sort of covered all the monuments. One way or the other, I've visited the Tour of Flanders a couple of few years ago when Cancellara won. Man, it was cold. That was my least favourite experience, actually. And I've worked on all the rest. I was there at Liège-Bastogne-Liège when Dan Martin won and he beats um, Porito in the sprint um, to the line. I was there when Cancellara... I was there for that Cancellara-Vanmarker-Paris-Roubaix um, victory working again for ITV. This autumn... And this spring, I was commentating for RCS at both Nibali's victories at Lombardia, which was a fabulous race. I really enjoyed that. Again, with a terrifying accident in it and at, in Milan-San Remo. So I've, I've, one way or the other, I've ticked them all off. So lucky me. But um, they're, all, they're great, aren't they? With the exception of Liège-Bastogne-Liège, which isn't. <laughs> What's wrong with Liège-Bastogne-Liège? Well, it's boring, isn't it? It's really boring. <laughs> it's just boring. And also, I struggle with the Ardennes classics. I mean, I've kind of... I've done... I've done the one-day races now. I feel like when we get to the end of Paris-Roubaix, and I love even the scale of the prize was great this year, wasn't it? There's so, there's so much to remember. But I'm kind of... I'm done, and now I want to see the stage race. I, now I want to see the Grand Tours. I'm kind of looking forward to that. Um, and the Ardennes Classic, they're a bit formulaic. Everyone waits until that final climb, whether it's the Flèche-Brabanson or Amstel Gold um, or the flesh and It all seems to be the same. And, it's, um, and in the end, Valverde wins. Lovely countryside, though. Yeah. <laughs> but in the end Valverde wins the Grand Tours are coming the first one of course uh, the Giro there is a massive element in the room with the Giro isn't there um, and with every day that passes you wonder whether the Giro is really going to start in Israel well I wondered briefly which elephant you were talking about because well we'll, we'll come on to the, <laughs> the skinny elephant the skinny later elephant. on um, yeah I mean we, we've just you know we've just woken up to overnight news about Israel potentially being involved in the bombing of a, of a Syrian airfield um, seems entirely plausible that they were. And this extraordinary ongoing story about um, the, the, the protests and doesn't strike me as the right place to go f- now to, to, to take a bike race, um, particularly because, from what I understand it, the, the, the money behind the Grand Depart in Israel and the people behind it don't seem entirely kind of open to the idea of making this a big statement of um, a peace gesture, if you like, and kind of like arms across the Great Divide. Um, it doesn't strike me as a particularly... It strikes me as an Israeli thing, you know, with barely a nod to the other people who live in that part of the world. It just seems like a bad idea, actually, right now, in terms of security and in terms of politics uh, all round, and I'm glad I'm not going. Um, at one point, I thought I was going to be going, and I, I, you know, I really had cold feet about it. And probably too late to change. Well, now, it's though. three weeks now, isn't it? Uh, and and knowing RCS as I do a little bit, I'm not entirely sure how cogent their um, contingency planning would have been. You know, they they do tend they do in their struggle for survival financially rcs and and let's face it almost every block of race organizers have the same problem face the same problems with the possible exception of aso you know they are easily attracted to the nearest person waving money around let's just put it like that you know and, and i get it and i'm grateful in some ways that sometimes they do do an uncom- you know i'm not entirely happy with their association with abu dhabi for example who don't have a great record in human rights. And yet, without that money, 
Tirreno Adriatico might not happen. You know, that's a race that loses money. It's, it's not easy. They have my sympathies in that regard, but I think this might be one, one handshake too far. This, this, um, having said that, if it, I think it will happen, Ian, and I can only hope that um, when it does happen that, uh, that those colleagues of ours who go out there um, report the whole story, and I'm sure they will, actually. And, and so maybe, maybe it'll be shedding um, light on a, the, the, a stalling peace process and it needs a wider discussion. So if it's treated like that, then... There may be a good thing, uh, some good will come out of it. As you said, there is a, another elephant in the room, a very skinny elephant in the room, Chris Froome. How long is that saga going to go on for? Oh, well, far too long. I mean, this is the obvious answer to that. Oh, you've got to pick your words extremely carefully here. If you, if you put yourself in his shoes, um, he, is, uh, he is completely adamant that he, and I know this for a fact, right? So he is completely adamant that he has done nothing wrong. I don't know if he did anything wrong, Ian. You don't know if he did anything wrong. The, this process will probably never establish, actually, and that's the deep frustration, whether he has done anything wrong. He'll either be exonerated or sanctioned, and either way, it'll be unsatisfactory. But if you put, if you put, it, if you put yourself in his shoes, I know that he is completely convinced that, and for that reason, he has not been open to any plea bargaining. So uh, uh, he has put the blocks every time it's mooted to him. You know, do you know what, Chris? You could stop racing now and you could start serving a voluntary suspension, which then might be backdated somehow so that if you are given a six-month ban, you can kind of claim that you've served half of it already. And you know, da, da, da. He's not going to go there because he does not want to creep into that territory which suggests that there's a scintilla of guilt in what he's done. He is desperate to prove that the testing process was uh, at a kind of molecular, biological level, uh, insufficiently reliable. Uh, whether or not he can prove that, well, we're deep into realms that are way beyond you and me here, and way beyond Chris Froome, and probably way beyond his legal team, and certainly beyond the ken of WADA and the UCI, it strikes me. So um, no one knows, I don't think, quite how this test result happens. Chris Froome claims it was innocent, but rules are rules. There are precedents. The, it, the problem comes from the, it, the, it, the, the level of his own conviction and his reluctance to accept any shred of doubt about his propriety. And for that reason, he, his team are slowing this down, really, because um, they are going to go into as much detail as they possibly can and string this out for as, possible, as, as long as they possibly can, I think. And that reluctance to admit the possibility of any wrongdoing... Um, is in some way typical of Sky as well, isn't it? Uh, which, which has not really helped their reputation. Again, I'm going to pick my words very carefully here because we're in difficult territory here. But you're right. And, and, you know, one of Chris Froome's problems is that he races in a white kit with a blue stripe down the middle. You know, it's been his blessing in many ways that the support he's received has given him the opportunity to do, do what he has done. Um, but he is now by association in this whole murk, much murkier in a way, mix with the, in, uh, the, the British cycling, um, UK anti-doping investigation, the Jiffy bag, the TUEs, which are not um, a matter of conjecture but fact. And unfortunately, it's all bound up in that. And, and yeah, you're right, Sky have a, an incredibly bullish attitude, uh, w which I find at times almost admirable, 
but also slightly inexplicable. I mean, it's still a mystery to me why the money men at, at Sky, at B Sky B, haven't kind of like seriously thought about or contemplated or gone near to pulling the plug on that team. Because I don't see, in PR terms, I just, I, I simply don't see what they have left to gain. They've won the Tour de France, what is it, five times now. Um, that's their payback. And now it just strikes me that from a brand point of view, unless they can turn this around extremely fast, and I don't see how, I, I don't get what PR benefit they're deriving from the team any longer. So they are being, in a way, if you like, admirably loyal. You know, kind of a perplexingly loyal. Um, it's the way they do things, Ian. It's, it's, they are not going to budge an inch. Away from all those problems, though... Um... Good season of racing ahead, we hope. Yeah, it's very hard to move away from those problems. I mean, I can see that I can hear the scepticism in your question. By the way, you know, let's forget about whether or not he, Froome will race uh, the Giro or come to that come to that matter. The Tour is a whole other political can of worms. Um, un, uh, you know, from what I've seen, he is in a very um, remote place in terms of his form. You know, we've never seen him this bad. <laughs> um, well, he's got no results to he's got no results whatsoever to, to look at so far in 2018, and the Giro's three weeks away now. Listen, he's Chris Froome, isn't he? So there's every chance that he can get to the Giro and win it by two and a half minutes. Um, we've not seen evidence that he's, he's he's in good enough shape to do that, but there's every chance he'll just yeah, he he just will he'll turn up. Um, but that's an interesting that's an interesting kind of side story isn't it because in the midst of all of this he's not he doesn't seem to be the rider that he was and and let's not forget and it's always worth stressing that his last i think i think i've got this right his last three grand tour victories uh the vuelta and the last two tours have not and none of those three races has he taken time out of his major rivals in summit finishes not once he's not ridden away from them that's three grand tours in succession so he's banked everything on his time trialing form. Um, and I think it's probably a harder thing to do at the Giro d'Italia than it is in the, in the Tour de France. Well, thanks for joining us, Ned. Pleasure. After Paris-Roubaix had finished, uh, just before the awful news, um, I'd managed to speak to Fabian Cancellara to get his views on the race. And the winner, bizarrely, he was in Utah, accompanied by ruler Stuart Clapp. But that's a story for another time. At, at the moment, Paris-Roubaix is happening. I'm watching Paris-Roubaix in Utah when I could have got to Lille from my house in a couple of hours. Is there a reason you're watching Paris-Roubaix in Utah rather than on Eurosport in Lyon C? Yes, there is. I, um, a couple of weeks back, uh, we got an email um, from the guys at Gore saying, do I want to come over to Utah to go riding in Park City with Fabian Cantillara and then watch Paris-Roubaix with him? This morning, which I've just been doing, uh, Fabian has just been just been talking us through the, the race. Actually, uh, he knows quite a lot about it. Surprising that, given he won three times. You know, it's like he still has. It's like he has the the, the race, like the the parkour is like burnt into his retina or something. He knows what's coming up next, and yeah, it's good. You know, he's like, yeah, it was. So yeah, we're we're here with Gore. Uh, they're launching some new new bits and pieces, and and uh, yeah, flew us out to to go and go and hang out and. Uh, in, in, in Utah, it's an incredible place. I don't suppose there's any chance you could pop back in and get Fabian on the phone, could you? Yes, I'll go and get him. I'll call him. Fabian! 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 Fabian, hello. Hello, Ian. Well, that was a pretty good race, wasn't it? Yeah, that was uh, quite interesting. And uh, also the words to the end from Peter 
the way the race came, the way uh, it came to his hands. I mean, we have seen uh, he was relaxed compared to the other teams. When we see the defensive, the offensive way, been few teams racing, and uh, he did one move, and there was a the good one, the right one. And uh, then he found uh, a strong Swiss horse in the front that keep on going. And uh, no, it's actually, um, he's a deserved winner and uh, an amazing second uh, place for Sylvain Dillier uh, because of being 220 kilometers in the break and being up there, I mean, uh, chapeau. When Sagan went with more than 50 kilometers to go, did you think uh, he was going to get away with it? Uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, at the moment where he went, there was anyway this sit the situation of like, Nothing was clear, nothing was really like uh, what will come, what will be the next step, uh, the next kilometers. I mean, it was this, just he came out from the nothing and then boom. And I think this is also what uh, he mentioned a bit. I mean, he had, he had no bad luck. And um, we saw before a bit the jumping around and the attacks and the small trying going away from other riders, other teams, but nothing really things worked out. I mean... Uh, Quickstep had uh, Stibar and uh, Gilbert in the front by themselves twice. I mean, I don't know why. And then, I mean, they tried to put pressure on, but on the other hand, it didn't work out. So, um, yeah, of course, it's always a long way. But I think uh, when we have seen he has made the major gap and then the gap has stayed for that time until the finish line. And, and Sagan looks so relaxed on the cobbles compared to a lot of other people. Yeah, but I think also, I mean, this is also the type of style or or even that, I mean, people been been on fatigue, people been tired. I mean, you saw on the back, there have been six riders pulling, but no one could close the gap to him. I mean, this is also uh, shown as of, 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 uh, of a super condition he had. And um, I mean, he was one of the favorite, but he wasn't the main favorite. And of course, also this... Uh, can help you or can give you um, also a, a relaxed way to uh, to work on. Because so many people thought that Sagan couldn't survive without a strong team like uh, Quickstep or, or one of the other strong strong squads. No, but today it has changed. Today things has worked for him. Um, if he was alone in the front, I don't know if he could arrive by himself. But I think this is also not the case now. Because uh, he won, and the way he won, uh, congratulations. I mean, it's always... And uh, uh, he wanted to have a win. I mean, that's also clear. But we have seen also with the Belgians, probably the Belgians have been fighting against each other. But still, um, the race had different places where was half decisions came up. I mean, there was two crashes, there was a few punctures, a few critical moments. Uh, where things has changed, but that's bicycle. That's the bicycle professional sport. I mean, it's uh, nothing has to be perfect. I mean, this is the drama that is part of the game, is part of uh, being professional bike rider. And you mentioned him before, but uh, a tremendous ride by Sylvain Dillier. You must have been you must have been cheering him on. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, first uh, he's Swiss. I know him. I spoke with him a few days ago. Uh, we've been texting to each other. He asked me a few advices, and um, but on the end, uh, he has made uh, a major, a major day, a major, uh, amazing ride. I mean, uh, 220 kilometers in the break, and then being up there. I mean, this is, doesn't happen so much, but I think um, 
yeah, it's it's so nice to to see Swiss guy up there and uh, amongst the big ones, I mean, amongst the favourites. And when you were watching today, is it, was there any sense that you'd rather be there on the bike rather than watching from Utah? Well, uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm fine with that. I mean, I, I know my situation. I mean, I'm more than happy. I mean, I'm retired in 2016. And uh, since that, I mean, I have my freedom. I have my freedom because uh, I, I don't have uh, any lack of, ah, I want to be back. Ah, I want to be there. I want to race. I'm, I'm quite busy, but in a good way. I'm, I'm learning in many directions. I'm learning in many, many new, new, uh, new experiences that I'm putting in because uh, this is the chapter, the second chapter I'm going into. I mean, I, I did 16 years professional and just standing still and uh, wasting the time at home and looking out on the mirror and, uh, oh, let's have a nice bike ride because it's nice weather. Nah, that's nothing. I mean, that's, that's too bored to sit around and doing nothing. I mean, I'm young, I'm, I'm motivated. I learned so many things and I want to put uh, experience on the road. That's why also we're chasing Cancellara to, to give experience to people, to have fun, to enjoy, to challenging each other and uh, to open new events for, for the community. I think this is important because the bicycle uh, has a huge potential on so many different ways and, and, and that's why I love it and I'm motivated in, in the directions I'm doing it. Fabian Cancellara, it's a, a pleasure to talk to you again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Fabian Cancellara. At one point there, I thought I was going to have to fade him out like we do with Stuart Clapp, but he stopped just in time. That's nearly it for this edition. Earlier, Ned Bolting said Tom Pidcock might be the first British winner of Paris-Roubaix, if, of course, you exclude Magnus Baxter, which you really should. But there's another name now to add to the mix. 16-year-old Lewis Askey won the junior version of the race this year, the second British victory in a row over the cobbles. Rulers Ian Cleverly caught up with him after the finish. Lewis Askey, Harry Roubaix winner, how does that sound? Um, unbelievable, but mental. So, yeah. Did you fancy your chances this morning? Um, yeah, no, if, I, if I'm honest, I always fancy my chances. I don't think you can go into a race not believing you can win. So, yeah, it's a race that definitely I've always looked watched since I've been, like, however little. And a race that I've always thought could suit me down to the ground. So, to come into that velodrome with just one other person and be able to out sprinting in front of all these people was crazy. Have you ever even raced on cobbles like that before? Um, no, never. The only time I've got close to that is just the racing I've done this year at Kern and Ghent Webblegum. So, and they're the only two races I've done this year. So. I was just talking to Stuart, the yeah. team boss, just now, and he was uh, filling me in a little bit. You're from Litchfield, done a bit of everything. Cross, yeah. cross skills come in handy today? Yeah, a little bit, yeah, definitely. I think, uh, especially on that one sector. It was um, a little bit wet and staying on your bike there was uh, crucial because it, it rained before the start quite heavily and we were expecting uh, a lot wetter than it was but we hit the first few sectors and it was pretty dry because I think the sun came out and it's been, it's been quite a hot day. I was sweating like a mad over the cobble so it was just the one sector really that was uh, really, really wet. And um, yeah, the, uh, the cross skills and everything, mountain bike, a bit of track at the end, it's, I think it all comes down and this is what I love doing, just riding my bike really. Yeah, nice one. Who are you going to give the flowers to? Oh, my nanny and granddad come here to watch me, so if I can find them, then uh, yeah. Oh, wonderful. Well done, mate. Thank you. And that's it from this Ruler podcast. Thanks to our guests, Ned Bolting and Fabian Cancellara. If you are able to get out on your bike, take it easy, and maybe take some time to remember a young man who died doing what he loved. Catch you next time.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.